This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lend Me Your Ears, the weekly podcast that takes a look at new or newish movies in theaters and, and other platforms and compares them to movies of days gone by that you may have overlooked and might want to check out. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I am a film writer. I got a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And we're going to take a look at some movies, past and present, that uh, feature funny women doing interesting and groundbreaking things in films, or not, as the case may be. And we'll see you in a few minutes. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian. The polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling, is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. So when we talked about uh, doing this particular podcast, this uh, conversation, Stephen, uh, I tried to think about this subgenre title. Is it female comedians? Is it comedians? I don't know if that's the uh, proper expression anymore. I don't know if anyone says comedians. Uh, Only genre, ironically. Genre language, <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, female-centric comedies, I guess, is is probably the most uh, accurate uh, description. I And, and looking at... Uh, comics who have uh, have made the jump from the the stand-up stage to the uh, you know headlining and uh, and starring uh, their name above the title and this has been happening you know time immemorial uh, there have been women who have 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 been opening films and people want to come to see them uh, right now the queen of said comedies is Melissa McCarthy uh, she has a new film coming out actually this month called life of the party and uh, Sandra Bullock was the queen for a while. In fact, she and McCarthy made a film together called The Heat, which was a huge hit. Um, yeah, and so, you know, and this is distinguished from romantic comedies, which we have spoken about on this show. We have a have an episode on romantic comedies. Or teen comedies, which I don't think we've talked about yet. But um, I think that some of these movies we will talk about do cross over into these genres. For that, sure, yeah. You know, there's a lot of gray. Um, but yeah, it's it's fun to go back and see how... The you know usually there's at least one or two women who are huge stars, A-list stars in Hollywood who are making these movies and, and for a stretch as long as audiences are interested in seeing them. Uh, and I think about going back to uh, you know my youth when Goldie Hawn was a huge star, and so I went back and watched a few of her films. Um, Lily Tomlin, Whoopi Goldberg in the 90s with movies like Sister Act. Uh, but uh, yeah, we have gathered together today to talk about Amy Schumer and I Feel Pretty, which is in cinemas right now. Uh, what did you think of I Feel Pretty? 
Uh, I had some reservations about the film, uh, but but overall, I liked it for Amy Schumer. Yeah. Um, I think uh, a lot of what's in this film is fairly conventional. Uh, you know, trying to top tap talk, uh, trying to tackle some uh, some serious issues regarding body image and and, and self worth and and um, the pressures that society places on women. Um, you know, all all fairly intense topics that that have the power to change or and influence lives, and it's not always treated maybe with the full um, seriousness seriousness that it needs. Even though it is a comedy, of course, and they need to keep it fairly light, I guess. But uh, I, I felt it could have gone a little bit more, I don't know, off the rails or in some different directions. But I thought Amy sold her character at least through the course of the film and, and I, I liked her and her arc even if the entire shell of the film didn't quite live up to uh, to what she was coming up with. Yeah, I like her too and I think you know her likability is a big part of her appeal. Uh, in her stand-up and on her show uh, Inside Amy Schumer, which I, I think she does her best work on that TV series, uh, you know, she really does get to the core of a lot of sort of modern anxiety around the way women uh, can look at themselves and the way that this double standard between men and women. Uh, and and I, I felt like, and I think we'll talk a little bit about Trainwreck, her a previous film she made, um, that that she's still dealing in these topics. But the in, in when she goes to the feature film route, I don't think it's nearly as biting as her TV show is. And maybe that's because they need to be a little more, played a little safer in order to appeal to a broader demographic in, in the cinema. Uh, I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, I like her. her. Her character, Renee, is a woman who, her genuine ambition in life is to work as a receptionist at the, uh, the cosmetics company that she works at. Right now, she's in a basement somewhere in Chinatown in New York City, but she really wants to be at head office. And uh, But she really is hard on herself. She judges herself really, really uh, it, through this lens of, of traditional measures of, of beauty. And, uh, and, you know, she gets into, and some of that is really interesting. And it's, you know, I think it's going to ring true for a lot of people. But I also, I think that, you know, at one at certain point, if you've seen the trailer, you know, she gets a knock on the head and then she sees herself very differently. All of a sudden she has all this confidence and that leads her to like pick up a guy. Basically she meets at her dry cleaner and, uh, I, you know, at the same time she's, I guess the joke is that she's sort of delusional. I mean, technically, she's not seeing things quite clearly. And uh, and then people start treating her, actually, as she starts to get confidence in herself. Other people, including other women, start treating her much worse than she... But she just shrugs that off and just keeps going. And it allows her to get her dream job. And then she makes a huge impression on her bosses, one of whom is played by Michelle Williams, who's amazing in this, as in support. I really like Michelle Williams <laughs> in this movie. Um... Uh, but yeah, at the same time, as she is, you know, ex examining these issues around, uh, you know, the way people, way women see themselves uh, through the beauty industry. I think that's the problem that I had with the movie. It's like she eventually has this sort of like, you know, big emotional moment towards the end of the movie where she comes, she understands that she was this person all along that she never really changed she's changed in her head this this moment of, of finding confidence in herself but she's doing it while she's promoting a cosmetic product and I feel <laughs> like that's where the hypocrisy in the film lies is like really there was an opportunity here to be actually a lot more critical of the way the beauty industry uh, exacerbates insecurity and the film doesn't do that it sort of it, it tiptoes around the issues of of how 
how you know many people are getting rich off of this insecurity and making women feel worse about themselves than they should. And uh, I don't. I wish the film tackled that. And you know maybe it's unfair of me to to you know criticize a film for what it doesn't do. And I should rather be looking at the way what it does do. And it does do. Schumer does good things. But but yeah, I felt like oh. Like she's still selling something here, uh, <laughs> you know, in the in this empower moment of empowerment, she's still selling a product, and that's what she gets actually approbation for at the end. She's like, oh, they're so happy because she actually wound up, you know, reaching your average, your, the, you know, these uh, target shopping uh, uh, customers, and I just felt I felt kind of queasy about that. Yeah, that didn't bother me quite as much. It, it was it's a flaw, I think for sure. Uh, and and somehow that didn't ruin the film for me. I, I think I think we come out of this uh, me liking it a lot more than you. And I know a lot of other people have been hung up on that point. And, oh. and part of me wishes that maybe if it had been set in a different corporate environment, maybe. Um, but then maybe you just have Working Girl, the remake. So <laughs> right. Uh, um, and, and and maybe that's you know the reason why they wanted to kind of target the beauty industry to a certain degree which but then of course you're right they don't in the end they they ultimately kind of uh pull that particular punch but uh but as far as uh schumer's arc goes of of you know building up that confidence i mean that's the reason to see the film and that's the part that works for me um and of course you mentioned michelle williams of course she's uh kind of the heir to this cosmetics uh you know empire or what have you we're never really sure. It's, is it a big company? Is it kind of middle of the road? Is it about to go under if this deal with Target doesn't go through? It's, that part is the most kind of undercooked element of the film. But you're right. She delivers a great performance as this, you know, gorgeous, you know, sprightly woman, uh, you know, elfin even, if you want to go that far, um, you know, who's got a high-pitched voice and, and, and is kind of waifish and everyone kind of judges her basis on her looks and her voice when in fact she's got a couple of college degrees and is, is kind of a marketing genius and and you know is, is struggling to be taken seriously so of course she's the flip side of of uh, of Amy Schumer's character and uh, I thought that dynamic was pulled off pretty well um, I like that too uh, and Lauren Hutton plays the the sort of her yes mother. it's great to see Lauren Hutton in yeah, this film yeah but yeah you're right and and, and there's a moment there's a couple of scenes with uh with a woman that uh, Amy Schumer's character Renee meets, uh, Emily Ratajkowski, who is famous as a model uh, and an actress. Yes, and the, of course the the uh, this was it the not the blurred lines video. Blurred I lines think was video, what yeah. she, she yeah, became, made her famous. So indeed, yeah. And so. she's actually she's actually fairly charming here. Uh, hopefully that she has some career beyond being a token female in a music video. Yeah, she's, I've seen her in a few things. But yeah, again, she's kind of, she is one of those those uh, people in the culture who's held up as being extraordinarily beautiful. And she is. But then, you know, then her character has her own insecurities. Yes. No one takes her seriously. No one thinks she has a brain. You know, and I, I, really, I really, I did enjoy those, those, uh, those aspects of the film exploring how, you know, we all got something. There's always something that we can feel bad about ourselves over. Yeah, I, I, there, there's all, there, I liked enough of the parts of the film uh, that I didn't feel like I'd wasted my time watching this movie, and, and of course, uh, a lot of it is up to up to Schumer to kind of carry it. Uh, Rory Scovel as the the love interest who you know who loves her kind of loves that confidence, but also kind of sees past it. I thought uh, I thought his part was fairly well written and performed. Um, it is. Uh, we should point out it's written and directed by um, a writing, and uh, I think this might be their first time directing. But uh, Abby Cohn and Mark Silverstein, who prior to this have written a bunch of fairly conventional but generally well liked uh, romantic comedies, never been kissed. He's not that into you. Um, 
I think this is their first attempt to tackle something with a little more gravity to it, and uh, you know, not certainly not a home run, but uh, at, at least they, you know, they have some of that uh, romantic comedy element, I guess, to make it commercial enough. You know, the meat cute and the dry cleaners and all that kind of thing. Um, but it, it seems like maybe they needed another hand in there to. I don't know, stir up the pot a little bit. Yeah, a little, a little more bite, I think, would have been welcome. Uh, I think my favorite moment in the film might have been when uh, Renee enters, goes, they go to Coney Island, I think, for like a, a date. It looks like Coney Island anyway. Yeah, I think it's and, on, I think it's maybe on the Jersey Shore uh, somewhere. There you go. And, uh, and they go and, and she enters into a bikini contest and uh, just, you know, just goes for it in a way that uh, is very funny and, but, you know, very winning just because it's, she's just sheer, sheer enthusiasm, even though she, her body type is slightly somewhat different from the other women who are there on stage with her. And uh, yeah, and then when she, you know, and this is, uh, you know, she doesn't win, but it doesn't let, she doesn't let it bother her at all. She's just like, ah, you know, whatever. Like she, she, she makes some, you know, joke about it being political. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but it's really, I think the point of that is that she just doesn't let it, she just goes for it. She doesn't let it bother her. She's, uh, you know, she just trammels, steps right over all of those, those issues and, uh, and has a great time. And, uh, and she's, you know, the crowd, the crowd loves her. Uh, yeah, I thought that was a, a pretty uh, interesting scene. And, and I have to say the, the moment where the truth dawns on her, I mean, spoiler alert, you know, eventually the, the bloom comes off the rose as it were, but, uh, uh, Schumer handles that magnificently. Like, I mean, obviously, it's in the, the midst of this preparation to launch this cosmetic line or whatever. But, but uh, you know, I, I saw that that scene and where she's just you know all these emotions rushing through her at once, and I thought she was extremely credible. And I, you know, I've I've seen Facebook posts from women who say that scene just goes right through them, like they just mm. really feel it, and uh, and I can see why. And I, I thought, you know, if she ever does like serious drama, she could probably. You know, pull it off fairly easily. Like, uh, just uh, there's there's some some real acting happening in that scene, not just uh, you know, the sketch comedy acting a romantic comedy level performance. She's uh, she goes deep with that, just that that brief scene, and and uh, you know that alone is a, is reason enough to see it, just because it's it's you know really gives you an idea of how much thought she's put into this character, which may not always be the case with you know like the train wreck she wrote so it does have a little bit more bite than this film Uh, but I think that character is a little more awash a little bit and I think I think you can see some growth in in her in her chops in in this film and uh, we're not really going to talk about Melissa McCarthy a lot uh, because you know enough has been said I guess in some ways but she always brings something to the table in terms of character and I think hopefully going forward Amy Schumer is going to have some of that kind of diversity because yeah. Melissa McCarthy it's always it seems to be really invested in character with her and, and that's why each you know the differences between each film make them worth going to and why people go, keep coming to see her in movies it's of, of varying degrees of quality it must be said but but um, qu- quite often she there's something in there worth seeing and, and hopefully we'll see more of that from Amy Schumer yeah I agree and I think that that having just a touch a little bit of drama a little bit of realism in these stories brings uh, a weight to the comedy it actually gives the comedy something to almost to react to which I feel is better for the film overall and I think about 
comedians of the past, the you know Diane Keaton being someone who you know became a star uh, thanks to Annie Hall, but she was also known as a dramatic actor before that in Godfather. Oh, but, and Searching for Mr. Goodbar, it's brutal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's amazing in that film, and of yeah. course, it's not available anywhere. Right, right. Uh, music rights, but. She is, you know, she's someone who could do both, and I think that a lot of people, and I think uh, I saw a trailer for a Melissa McCarthy film coming out this fall with uh, Rich D. Grant, uh, and where she plays a writer who who uh, forges a bunch of famous documents yes. uh, based on a true story. And I'm really looking forward to that, because I, I got a feeling that even though the trailer is, uh, in, you know, showing the funny parts, I bet you there's going to be a lot of pathos and a lot of uh, intensity in, in that film, too. That I think it's probably going to cross over a little bit of a comedy. Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, yeah. you, she's playing such a different character in that trailer uh, and in that film. Uh, actually, it's funny you mentioned that. I wish I could remember the title. It's based on the title of the book the woman eventually wrote. She basically forged all these letters from famous people. Um, uh, on, on a, something about forgive, forgive me. I should have written this down. You'll never forgive me, I think. Something, something like that, yeah. Sorry, folks. Yeah. <laughs> IMDb it. Um, the, uh, the, it is a true story. And in fact, um, on a sort of collector's classic movie message board I'm on, there are people who have actually been taken in by some of her forgeries that have posted on there. And they're not quite as sympathetic towards her character. Right. And, and they know people who, whose businesses were essentially ruined yeah. by, by have, you know, once it got around that they'd sold forgeries that they'd bought from her. Um, uh, it, uh, it, it actually did, you know, in the collectors, the autograph and, and letters collectors market, it really took the wind out of a lot of people's yeah. sales. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that film will, will tackle that subject matter. But yeah, the, the, it looks like a sort of a darkish character comedy and uh, we'll see if it follows. Maybe it'll be more of a kind of dark character driven comedy, like say, like being there with Peter sure. Sellers or something like that, which I would look forward to because I could, I could use more of those kind of films. Yeah. Um, now, do you want to talk a little bit about Trainwreck? Uh, you know, just before we finish up on, before we go back in time and talk about other comedians who have, uh, you know, led uh, films, uh, feature films, female comedians, uh, Trainwreck, you know, directed by Judd Apatow, was Schumer's big big uh, chance to sort of bring her her brand of comedy to the big screen and uh, yeah I felt about that one although I really liked her comedy I liked her character a lot I liked the fact that she you know behaves as as they say like about like traditionally she she behaves in the way a lot of men are considered to behave in the cliche of the you know the man all he cares about is sex and uh, partying and uh, you know and basically she applies those kinds of behavioral tropes to her a female character and uh, and I I didn't feel like again that it was edgy enough but I really liked her and I liked her scenes with uh, Colin Quinn playing her father who suffered from MS and in an assisted living environment and uh, and with her sister uh, played by Brie Larson. Uh, who has who's married with a stepson and a baby on the way and is is much more conservative in some ways uh but then uh yeah her character falls in love with uh Aaron uh, played by Bill Hader who's a sports doctor and she's supposed to be profiling him for her magazine she's a journalist uh and then she sleeps with him uh which in, in by the way uh journalists journal any journalism students <laughs> out there it's a real no-no don't do that <laughs> yes. um and uh yeah and then uh you know after they sleep together she's put off by the fact he's interested in her for more than just sex uh and the and a highlight here of course is is lebron james playing himself uh with terrific comic timing as the protective friend of aaron's who looks out for his buddy's best interests. it's it's there are there's definitely some charming moments in the film I, th I think they were smart. They, it's jammed with so many 
good characters that that I think that's what carries you through. It, it's I, I guess it's their first screenplay, and, and you know there are a few cracks along the way, but I think uh, Judd Apatow knows how to smooth over them to some degree. It would have been nice maybe if she'd worked maybe with a female director to see what kind of a different slant that uh, th- that would have put on the material. John Senna, the, is he a wrestler? Yeah, he's a wrestler who, now. Who, he's doing a lot of great work. Now you know, being praised for his work in Blockers, nice to see that, yeah, yeah. You know, that you can actually... You know, The Rock isn't the only guy who can come out of a wrestling career with a credible um, big screen career. Um, uh, Brie Larson is great. Tilda Swinton shows up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's fabulous. You know, it's nice to see her do do comedy. Um, you know, of course she was she's in some of the Wes Anderson stuff as well. But um, uh, I, I think, and again, it's it's maybe the whole isn't necessarily greater than the sum of the parts, but. Uh, it, it's it's smart enough to, to have enough stuff going on in it that, to to uh, make it engaging. I saw it at the drive-in in the valley, which uh-huh. is coming kind of uh, you know. So and and there may have been a couple of of uh, liquid adult beverages involved prior to the screening. So so uh, so that may have enhanced my enjoyment of the film. But I but I I certainly liked it at the time. And and that uh, actually that wasn't such a bad place to see Trainwreck <laughs> sitting in a car watching Trainwreck. Uh, it seems seems to make sense. It's interesting to note that women have always been a big part of comedy. Maybe we're even a bigger part of it uh, at the dawn of the film era. Um, when you consider people like Mabel Normand, uh, a comedic actress who was a huge star, and then her personal life and problems, and then eventually poor health kind of took her off the screen and and, uh, and brought her to an early end. There's a, there's a huge raft of... Um, of silent film comedians who could do the, the slapstick just as well as the men could. Louise Fazenda is a name you probably don't know. Alice Howell is a woman who, uh, is, who her films are actually currently being restored and released on a DVD. And, and she was a, a very funny comedian from the silent era with, a, you know, kind of a heart-shaped face and a weird, poofy hairdo who had a very striking visual image and and uh, did these domestic uh, slapstick comedies that, that are very funny, and uh, I'm glad they're being rediscovered. Um, uh, but, of course, that style quickly went out of fashion, and not a lot of those actresses made a successful transition to sound for, for one reason or another. Um, you know, Zezu Pitts is one I can think of. She was actually a serious actress. She's in films like Greed, and then she becomes a well-known com- comedic actress because of her kind of uh, creaky Midwestern speaking voice and she's in a number of comedy shorts and then she becomes a beloved uh, supporting player that you see in in films, you know, playing the kind of sort of funny best friend with the dry wit and the pathetic life or whatever. Um, so so the, they're, they're always a big part of films and, and I don't know when at some point, uh, maybe after Doris Day, it, it, comedy kind of turned to more bro humor uh, in, into the 70s and, and 80s as kind of the stand-up comedy stars became the movie stars. Um, one, one of the earliest sound comedy stars uh, to really make an impact and kind of shake up the industry would have to be Mae West. Um, I mean, she was a force to contend with uh, Initially on the stage, she did these shows that were frequently shut down by police. I mean, she had one play that was just called Sex. That was the name of the play, which, uh, you know, just alone. It it was such a loaded word, you know. Like I mean, the film, they used to use it in kind of clever ways uh, to kind of bump up the oomph of films. You know, the opposite sex or the, you know, the savage sex or whatever. You know, they would use the word in ways that all of a sudden they couldn't after 1934 when the production code came in. So, you know, Mae West was one of those stars that, you know, some people thought 
uh, certainly in the industry and in the press and so on, thought she could never make the transition to films because her work was just too lewd and not ready for, well, it wouldn't be prime time, but screen time and so on. But but uh, she uh, she got on at Paramount and they tried to tame her down a little bit, at least for the early 1930s uh, during the pre-code era. And her films were huge smashes. Like, you know, once once her fame spread beyond, uh, you know, New York and the, the big cities into the into the Midwest and into the heartland, uh, she became a huge star. And, and the, the story goes that the film that I watched, uh, She Done Him Wrong, uh, which features a very young Cary Grant in one of his earliest roles, uh, actually saved Paramount Pictures. It actually, uh, you know, caused enough of a sensation and, and brought enough uh, bums into seats that Paramount was pulled back from the brink of, of bankruptcy. Because at the time, Paramount was kind of the... It was MGM had all the stars, but Paramount was like the glossy studio. They had, uh, for example, they had Marlena Dietrich was kind of one of their uh-huh. stars. Gary Cooper was their handsome leading man, and and those films with uh, with stars like that cost a small fortune to make. And I don't know that the public really took to Marlena the way they did to other stars of that era. Um, you know, she was certainly glamorous and you know, had this mystique about her that was undeniable. But uh, I don't know how well it played. You know, on the on the long run on the th- on the theater circuit, but you know she certainly had a, a long film career. But uh, but Mae West's earthiness really appealed to to Middle America in a way, and and of course there was so much uh, scandal and sensation around her name that it was just something you know it was like showgirls. It was like you had to see it to right. believe, to believe it kind of right. thing. Uh, she done him wrong was uh, based on a play called Diamond Lil, where she uh, is kind of a, a a singer performer in a sort of late 1890s, the gay 90s uh, kind of era, Bowery, uh, I want to say ballroom or uh, vaudeville house or whatever, music hall, I guess, would be the closest thing, but uh, where men go to drink and see pretty women dance and and that kind of thing. And uh, there was also a shady aspect to it in the stage version where I think there was also prostitution involved and and she might have had more of a role as kind of a madam. Uh, They said... uh, you know what existed in terms of a production code. There, there was an authority kind of overseeing uh, production at the time, but it wasn't quite didn't quite quite the heft that it would in in 1934. And it one of those things like, oh, you'll never see this on a on a movie screen, <laughs> this play. So they changed the title from she's, she goes from being Diamond Lil to Diamond Lou. They changed the title to uh, to she done him wrong um, to kind of play up maybe the more crime filled aspects of it. And it, it is it is kind of this fun, interesting portrait of late nineteen or late eighteen nineties New York City on you know, the era of Boss Tweed and all that kind of thing. Uh, you know, corsets and uh, long flowing gowns and horseback carriages and and city hall corruption. And it all gets wound up into this film where where the bar that she works at and where she sings um, is at the center of all this political corruption. So there, it's got a little more kind of political heft. Um, you know, she's her man is the guy who runs this joint, but she's basically chasing after every other guy that she sees. She she basically devours Cary Grant with his with her eyes. You know that this is where the famous line uh, "Come up and see me sometime" uh, came from. And uh, you know, and and you know, men doff their hats to her with like looks of loss and regret in their eyes. Like it's it's basically it looks like she never turned anybody down. And. Uh, <laughs> And and somehow by being so voracious, she's she winds up with the upper hand. So and that was, you know, the, there were vamps in movies, um, 
you know, certainly in the silent era, Theta Bera, you know, the, the women who would come after a man and basically suck the life out of him sort of thing. But that's not... Uh, um, that's, that's a whole that, other episode. But, but yeah, but it's a whole other episode. <laughs> and, and Mae West, you know, wasn't, she wasn't after men for their money uh, or anything like that. She just liked the company and, uh, and other aspects of uh, male relationships. And, um, you know, like she said, it's not the men in my life, it's the life of my men. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. I remember that saying. That's too, what, I yeah. mean, she had so many of those kind of, kind of sayings. And, and, um, uh, and, and this film is, she's, you know, she's just the queen of double entendres, you know, like, uh, it wasn't in this film, it's in a different film, I think Night After Night, where she's, um, you know, she goes to a nightclub, checks her fur, and, and uh, you know, the the girl at the coat check counter says, goodness, what a fur, and she says, oh, goodness, had nothing to do with it, you know, the, it's it's still a funny line, even after, I mean, she originated it, and it's it's a kind of a famous line, but it's it actually still works, and, and here, I mean, she seems like an odd creature, especially given that you know, the, the hammer would drop on any kind of salaciousness in movies uh, in a few short years after this was made. So she does feel a bit out of time in a way. Um, and she's not conventionally beautiful in a Hollywood kind of way, but that kind of makes her more attractive in a way. It, it kind of comes back to the Amy Schumer thing. She just, she's got this, you know, spine of, of character and confidence that, you know, men are drawn to that. And then she takes advantage of that. And, you know, in a way she winds up with the diamonds and, and the money, and that gives her some semblance of power, um, you know. And then she meets Cary Grant, who is uh, ostensibly the head of a Salvation Army type mission that's next door to the bar, and he's like the man she can't have, kind of thing. And that just makes her try even more. And uh, so that's kind of a fun aspect of it. The movie is like an hour and five minutes long. Wow, it's insane how much stuff is packed into this film. If you get a chance to see it, it probably pops up on TCM. I have a DVD of it. Um, I think it's still available as, at a bargain price. Uh, and then there's a there's a comedy cartoon short that's basically a parody of the exact movie. Like it's a cartoon version of the whole movie in huh. six minutes. Um, <laughs> so she done him wrong. And when did it come out? Uh, I believe it's like 1931 or something like that. Okay. I, I don't have the, I can't read the fine print on the on the thing here. But um, and uh, you know, like I say, it, it's based on a stage show that they said could never be brought to the screen. And when you're watching it, you can kind of see the. Where, it, you know, the, there are references to, like, a, a girl tries to kill herself in the bathroom of this bar, and they, they stop her just in time. And then you get the feeling that she was probably sent to work in a brothel, but they kind of tone that down to she was sent off to be, learn how to be a pickpocket or something uh -huh. like that, which doesn't really seem to work. Um, you know, you'd have to have kind of an inclination to do that, whereas, you know, the, the, certainly prostitution and, and the, the chains that it puts on on people involved in it are a lot more insidious and, and a lot more believable in that context. But anyway, they, I guess they, they couldn't go that far with that, right. that storyline. And it's, it's fairly inconsequential over the course of the film. So they, I guess they didn't feel that invested in it, but uh, you know, but Mae West is certainly a force that runs through this film and, and others from that early era. And then of course, once the production code came in, of course she was still a big star. She still made films for Paramount and she was still bringing in the bucks, but she, had, you know, by kind of taking the bite out of her, her personality and her humor, uh, you know, her star didn't stay aloft for, right. for very long. Right. And uh, her last sort of big success, you know, she, she had these kind of comebacks in her later years and made some very odd movie choices. Myra Breckenridge with uh, Raquel Welch is, is one notorious one. But, um, you know, her, her last sort of final bow, and again, it's after the code, but still worth seeing. It's My Little Chickadee, where they pair her with W.C. Fields. Sure. And they're, you know, 
it's it's great to watch because there you don't have to believe that there would be anything sexual between them at all. It's it's more of a you know they they have to kind of team up for other advantageous gain and and uh, they get to trade some great barbs and the chemistry the co- comedic chemistry is there is is fantastic. It, it is a comedy classic for a reason. I mean there aren't too many people who could hold their own with W C Fields, but Mae West did, uh, and for that alone she's you know she's definitely one of the the great stars of of that early Hollywood era. Uh, who who else do you have there? Do you have any others to suggest from that period? Um, this is a film that's pretty well known, uh, but weirdly enough, I had waited to see it for years. It's 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 a comedy called The Women. Uh, it was uh, famous at the time it came out in 1939 because there isn't a single male character seen in the film. There are no male actors in this movie. It's all a female cast, directed by George Cukor, who is famous for his skill at uh, at getting great comedic performances from female performers and actors like um, certainly the Philadelphia story with Katherine Hepburn Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant is is maybe his best known triumph sure yeah and, it's and, one of my favorites yeah and he was thought you know he for most of his career he was I don't know if typecast is the right word but because I think he just liked working with female actors more than males uh, as, as a women's director and and uh, I think uh, I think women just like working with them. I think he had a certain sympathy towards them, and 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 certainly wasn't a tyrant like many other famous directors of the era were. And uh, I think uh, the big stars really really wanted to be in Kukor films, and uh, he really brought out the best in them. The Women has an amazing cast. Uh, Norma Shearer. It's an MGM film, so of course Norma Shearer is the center of the story because she was married to head of production Irving Thalberg and was one of the biggest stars at MGM. Um, Canadian, originally from Montreal, and, uh, you know, one of the, the real queens of glamour of the 1930s. Uh, Thalberg died at a young age before the decade was out, and, uh, and and she didn't need to work, obviously, so after that. So she kind of bowed gracefully from the screen at some point. But, uh, and, and she's, she has this, uh, her acting has a kind of a mannered style that maybe hasn't aged so well as, say, like a more modern Catherine Hepburn type of thing. Uh, so not all of her films work for me, but she actually is put to really good use here. Obviously, pairing her with Kukor is a good idea, um, as uh, she's the devoted wife of a of, of a business, you know, a well-to-do New York businessman named Stephen Haynes, who we never see. She talks to him on the phone from time to time, but um, she finds out that he's been stepping out on her with a cosmetics or sorry, perfume counter worker na- uh, played by uh, Joan Crawford, huh. uh, and uh, Crawford. Not always known for comedy, but she did make them. Uh, I mean, mostly she's known for the film noir type things like um, like Mildred Pierce, uh, Sudden Fear, you know, some of those more sort of potboiler type melodramas. Um, you know, some people just know her for Faye Dunaway playing her in Mommy Dearest, but she did have some comedic skills. I mean, her early, when, you know, the early 30s films, the pre-code films of Joan Crawford are a much different animal than her later career. I mean, she really transformed herself in a remarkable way, uh, you know, to, to have this career that lasted into the early 70s. Um, but basically, the, there's this kind of war of wits between the, the wife slash ex-wife and uh, the scheming uh, interloper. And in fact, the, the, the credits of the film are famous because they, they portray, they show the, the stars in, in portrait at the start of the film and they give their name and their characters. And then the, each portrait kind of fades into a picture of an animal so, oh, so, um, so Joan Crawford's character kind of becomes kind of a cheetah, <laughs> like a prowler. Um, Norma Shearer's character fades into a lamb, like lamb to the slaughter, I guess, at the mercy of this uh, predatory woman. Um, 
and then various other characters in the film that are played by uh, Rosalind Russell, who's kind of the, the queen of screwball comedy. You know, you think of her, his girl Friday and her banter with Cary Grant in that film, uh, you know, is, is kind of unequaled. And she's on she's just as good here. Uh, Paulette Goddard shows up as a divorcee uh, when all the, a group of the women kind of decamp to Reno, which you had to do in those days, I guess, because Nevada had such loose marriage and divorce laws. So many people went to Nevada to get their divorces, but you had to stay there for a few weeks. So these ranches and resorts popped up where women would just hang out huh. wait, waiting for the divorces to go through. <laughs> um, and that's, you know, that's a big part of this film. Um, uh, who else is on this list? Joan Fontaine, uh, who uh, I guess most people will know from a couple Hitchcock films, for example, from Rebecca and, and um, Suspicion. Uh, she plays another uh, woman who uh, her marriage is on the rocks. Uh, teetering and she shows up in Reno but then you know things change for her and uh, like I say there there are no men in the film which is uh, which is pretty remarkable for 1939 you know because the, like the marketing concerns of today they were you know really concentrated on trying to get you know you'd have to have the comic relief and the husky male and then the beautiful female and try to appeal to as wide an audience as possible but for whatever reason uh, I think maybe because the play by Claire Booth Luce was such a hit on, on Broadway, uh, they were able to to bring it to the screen in a more faithful adaptation. There's lots of double entendre. I mean, it is it is racier than most 1939 pictures go because they're, obviously they're talking about people who are cheating on their husbands or husbands who are cheating on their wives. And so there's a certain amount of innuendo that you that is really deftly handed. Uh, Anita Luce, who was a fabulous screenwriter, um, took the chores of, of making you know for making it fit the the uh, decency mode for, for the big screen, but still manages to get some stuff in there that uh, uh, that wouldn't normally get past censors, per se. Uh, at one point, uh, Joan Crawford, you know, addresses, you know, because, I mean, Joan Crawford is this woman, she's obviously, she's working at a perfume counter. She's So she's obviously working class, who's kind of, you know, clawed her way up, if you will, um, to, to her position and, and, you know, wants to make the next leap. Um, through marriage or whatever means at her disposal, and uh, when you know when she addresses all these other society women, uh, you know she goes, "There's a word for you, women," and it's one you normally only hear in kennels. So, Ooh. yeah, that's and, and you know everybody who saw this film at the time would instantly know what she meant. You couldn't say the word, right? But, you know, which is funny. You think of what you can get away with on television today, and what you couldn't get away in movies in the 1930s. Um, you know, but that's the kind of level of cleverness in this film. Now, of course, uh, even though there are no men in this film, visibly, uh, it, this film would not pass the Bechdel test because they're just talking about men the whole time. Right. And, uh, you know, that's maybe where it falls. It, so it's, you couldn't exactly call it a feminist classic because every, they're just, they're warring over men and, and it's obviously the, the main thought in the back of their minds. And uh, but but uh, just to see these performers give such strong performances and, and the pacing of it, it's over. It's like two hours and twelve minutes long or something like that, which is a long for any movie at that time. You know, until Gone with the Wind came along. I mean, certainly there've been epics before that in the silent days. But by the time of the sound era, uh, you know, the, the studios tried to keep things under control in terms of costs, and you know, they wanted movies tended to be short so you could cram more matinees in over the course of a of a given day or whatever. So the fact that Kukor got to um, Keep the men out of the film, uh, have the running time that he wanted. You know, comedy and to have a comedy at over two hours was nuts. Like, you know, you think most of those classic comedies are rarely over ninety minutes. Um, 
so there, you know, this film got to be made uh, without a lot of compromises, and that's what makes it so remarkable today. And uh, it really is worth seeing for for uh, the interplay and and the comedy, which goes from like this very witty, you know, written comedy on the page to some knockdown, drag down kind of slapstick humor. It, it really runs the gamut in terms of styles of humor, and it's, uh, it, you know. It, Again, it's a film I've been aware of for years and years and years and years, but I waited. I said, you know what? I really want to see this in as good a format as I can. Um, there's a Technicolor. It's a black and white film with a Technicolor fashion sequence in the middle of the film. Whoa. All the women converge on like a, a high-scale Fifth Avenue clothing uh, outlet, and uh, it's just they all assemble in, in kind of like a theater, and all of a sudden there's this Technicolor fashion show in the middle of the film, which is... Uh, you know, I'm sure people oohed and odd over that at the time uh, when this movie came out. Uh, so because of that, I really wanted to wait and, and and even you know see it in some sort of high quality digital and copy. And it is on it is on Blu-ray and it looks great. Like the, the color segment looks great and uh, it finally gets the kind of the treatment it deserves. Um, and uh, really is a, is is kind of a stepping stone to to a lot of um, modern female comedy. In fact, uh, we were just. Noticing that uh, this film has actually been remade a couple times. Uh, the most recent one, uh, same title, The Women, 2008. Uh, Diane English uh, wrote it based on the original play and directed it. And it has this amazing cast. And I think it came and went without a trace. I mean, this was, this was a decade ago, but I sort of barely remember this film coming out. Meg Ryan, Annette Benning, Eva Mendez, Deborah Messing, Jada Pinkett Smith, Bette Midler, Candace Bergen, Carrie Fisher, Cloris Leachman, Debbie Mazur. Uh, I mean, that is a cast. I like. I really need to catch up and and see this update of the film. It didn't get great reviews. Um, you know, maybe they didn't update it enough. Uh, it's quite possible, but I'm still I'm still curious to see it. And I think they did stick with the uh, the no men allowed uh, aspect of the casting because there there was a musical version. Of course, the, you know, if a movie was successful, um, what they don't do now is you know now they just either do a remake or a sequel. But often, if a movie or a story was successful, then they would turn it into a musical. That was another way of getting more life out of an old story. So you get. Uh, the Philadelphia story gets turned into high society. The women got turned into the opposite sex, and uh, it, um, you know, they made them. They they do actually introduce some of the male characters in the flesh in the musical version. I guess because they figure women have to dance with somebody. Heaven forbid if they just dance with themselves. Uh, and uh, I don't think it's particularly successful for that. But uh, it's probably worth seeing as a curio if you if you do see the original uh, George Cukor, the women, the musical. Uh, I'm sure it pops up on TCM all the time. Might be worth checking out as well. So now I'm I'm looking at movies that uh, that were made in the late '70s when uh, when Goldie Hawn became a big star and uh, and uh, Lily Tomlin as well uh, was making films a lot of great uh, films you know that were big hits. Uh, but you mentioned something when we were off air about uh, <laughs> about something that uh, that happened and uh, sort of sent reverberations through the American comedic uh, community. Uh, what was that, Stephen? Oh, well, it was it's a famous incident that happened, I think, at the Aspen Comedy Festival years and years ago. Well, obviously years ago because Jerry Lewis is is the subject of what happened. he uh, he was doing q and a, Martin Short, who, of course, is a huge fan of his was just asking him about his life and about comedy and so on. The room was packed with any notable person in comedy at that time. And, and I think this is, you know, 15 years ago or something like that. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, started asked him about the funny women he worked with over the course of his years. And I can think of uh, Kathleen uh, Freeman, I think, was a, a, an actor who was in 
a couple of Jerry Lewis comedies at the very least and was very funny and, and you know, had this great character, character, actor, comedic career. For example, um, there's, there's, Shirley there's other, McClain. Shirley MacLaine was in Artists and Models with Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. Uh, and, and basically he came out and said that women aren't funny and that just that was a blanket statement. He just said that. Um, I don't think he explained himself. What I think, a, what I a think, jerk. I think Mark, yeah. What an ignorant it was a, <laughs> What a maroon. <laughs> it was, it was a, yeah, a total douchebag move. I think he may have just said it to get attention. And, and, but, uh, but if you think about it, I think there is that attitude amongst uh, a lot of people in the industry. You know, I mean, we've seen how rotten that business is at the core with the whole Harvey Weinstein uh, debacle. Um, or triumph, as the case may be, um, uh, probably more so as the years go by. Uh, but but that uh, lack of faith in, in women to be funny and to carry their own vehicles and that kind of thing, uh, you know, I think that maybe that statement was kind of a tip of an iceberg. Yeah. Uh, that that maybe he just said it to get attention and to and to rattle people. But uh, I think at its core. Uh, there probably is a substantial n- number of figures in that industry who believe it. And, of course, we know it's not true. Uh, it wasn't true when he was actually a star and relevant, and it isn't true today. So, uh, you know, maybe he was just saying what a lot of other people were, were unconsciously thinking or subconsciously thinking. But, uh, you know, obviously, as this show shows, that, that if you go, if you actually look at the history, it's it's not true and it's never been true. No. And, uh, and, and we're going to talk about, uh, as you mentioned, Lily Holman, uh, Lily Holman, <laughs> Lily Tomlin and Goldie Hawn, yeah. uh, who came up out of laughing. Um, as, 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 and you know, Goldie Hawn was the girl in the bikini with the tattoos all over her body. And, 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 uh, Lily Tomlin had a variety of, of I mean, she often just kind of played herself on laughing, but she was also Ernestine, the operator and Lilith Ann, the, the, the smart mouthed uh, young girl who was very funny, uh, and uh, amongst other characters. Um, so, you know, they were kind of came out of these sort of caricatures, but then to play very real, very well-rounded characters, uh, in, in a number of films. Well, that's the thing, and I, I am familiar with them, and it was a joy to go back and watch them. I would say Private Benjamin from 19, 1980 was, uh, was the one I enjoyed the most watching again. Uh, Foul Play from 78, a little less so. I don't think it's aged quite as well. But Private <laughs> it Benjamin... It does have its moments, though. Yeah, it does have its moments. Private Benjamin, uh, Goldie Hawn plays a, uh, a very uh, sheltered uh, and privileged woman who is getting married, getting all the things she ever wanted. This is written, incidentally, by Nancy Myers, or co-written by Nancy Nancy Myers, and uh, so Judy Benjamin is 28 years old, and she gets to marry a doctor played by Albert Brooks, and so we we start at the wedding, and everything is great, and Judy is is you know is just yeah she she has no life experience, and uh, what happens is uh, Yale, the Albert Brooks character, dies on the wedding night, uh, so <laughs> cut to the funeral, and then she's completely lost. She has her whole life is is shattered, uh, and she she doesn't know what to do, and then she meets Harry. Dean Stanton, who uh, <laughs> recruits her into the army, and she's totally unprepared for the army, especially not for Eileen Brennan as Captain Doreen Lewis. Uh, so it becomes sort of the middle part of the movie is kind of this uh, boot camp comedy, uh, not not so different from something like Stripes, except of course much more a feminist perspective. I think and it predates Stripes. It even. does predate yeah. Stripes, yeah. Uh, and uh, you know she tries to make the army her home, and uh, it is kind of refreshing to see how she kind of comes into her own. It's not anti-military at all. It's just, but it's really about a character who finds 
uh, support from the women that she's with and strength in herself to make her own decisions. And as the film goes in the third act, she, she moves to Europe. She meets Armand Asante, who is very charming and uh, falls in love with him. And all of a sudden, the sort of character who she was, uh, you know, her her comfort, her interest in comfort and status comes back. But uh, I won't tell you how it turns out. But it's uh, she is she winds up being true to herself in a way that's really impressive. And I really I really love the film. I think it's it still has lots to say to us today, even though it is, you know, 38 years old. Um and uh, and then Foul Play, uh, which is uh, a film from 78. It's kind of a comedy thriller in a way that we don't see that much. It's full of jump scares and ridiculous plot red herrings. Uh, and and very, a little bit of Hitchcock in there, too, with uh, San Francisco locations. It's, it's channeling a little bit of vertigo, I think. <laughs> but, Beware uh, of the dwarf. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, Han plays a librarian named Gloria. who uh, She's a divorcee who picks up a guy on the side of the road. And it turns out that he's part of a, some criminal conspiracy and has incriminating film that he sort of stashes with her in a cigarette package uh, that she carries around with her that winds up being a complete, like, it has nothing to do with the rest of the plot. Like, it never really plays a role in the rest of the film. It's just there to be like, oh, if we get the film, then it's everything will be solved and she'll be out of danger. Of course, she isn't. People keep trying to kill her and she keeps going, ah, someone's trying to kill me. And the cops, played by Chevy Chase, uh, he's kind of like, I, I believe you believe this, but I don't see any evidence of it. And um, it doesn't make a lot of sense overall, but it's entertaining <laughs> no. enough. And Dudley Moore has a great supporting role in it. He's very funny. Um, but yeah, Han is amazing. I mean, she's both charming, slightly befuddled. Like she has that sort of like, you know, she plays up a little bit of the blonde, uh, you know, slightly always, always a... Uh, in trouble uh, and can't quite take care of herself. That, that of course, she worked against in uh, in Private Benjamin. But it's a it's a charmer, I guess. I don't know that I'd necessarily recommend it, but uh, but it's funny to see a movie that was a big hit back in the day and see that it doesn't quite work anymore. Uh, yeah, it's it's very much a film of its time. I I can recommend it. I I remember watching it about five or six years ago and and still enjoying it despite its you know some of the dated flaws that it has but uh, you know it's from that brief window when Chevy Chase was actually charming uh, and (laughs) could carry a movie I mean this is I guess I mean he'd been in a couple things prior to this and you know Saturday Night Live of course Um, this is his first kind of leading man role that I can think of and and he was able to you know obviously you know Caddyshack and a few other and Fletch and a couple of other films kind of put him in his best light vacation um Christmas vacation, maybe not European or Vegas vacation, <laughs> um, but uh, but uh, you, you know he could carry a movie and be charming and and uh, even uh, handsome. So uh, this is a brief that brief window <laughs> of yeah. time that he that he occupied when he could pull off uh, the whole shooting match. Um, and uh, you know I do like the the San Francisco locations. Um, there was kind of a case for these romantic comedy thriller caper movies in the seventies. Um, some of them are great. What's up, Doc? With Barbara Streisand and Ryan O'Neill is probably the best of the bunch because then they tried to replicate that in another Streisand film called For Pete's Sake, where they teamed her with uh, Canadian actor Michael Sarazen, who. Uh, you know, kind of looked like he wished he was somewhere else through <laughs> most uh-huh. of the course of the film. I mean, Barbara pulls out all the stops trying to, you know, make this film work. It doesn't quite work. Um, again, it pops up on TCM. We're seeing uh, just to see Babs kind of flail about in comedic mode. Um, and, uh, you know, she made, and then she, of course, she returned to uh, 
Ryan O'Neill in the main event, which where she famously had the, the boxing pose on the the poster and everything. I remember like that. that. Sure. Um, not as good as uh, What's Up, Doc, but uh, but a film that's not that remembered and still has has uh, some worth in it and a great theme song with Donna Summer and Barbara Streisand in a duet that was a huge deal at the time. Uh, and it's actually a pretty great song. Was it Enough is Enough, I think? I think I have the Disco 12-inch remix of that somewhere. But uh, but but Goldie Hawn seemed to have a, a pretty thriving uh, career that uh, I wish had... had uh, she lost some momentum somewhere along the line. Perhaps, yeah, in the perhaps, 80s. In perhaps, the 80s. You know, when, you know, when family life took over, I think she kind of had less interest in... You know, yeah. being responsible for these hits, and but the, but you think some of the films that followed. Um, I want to give a shout out to Swing Shift, which isn't so much a comedy; it's more of a drama. But she's great in it as a as a as a woman working on the assembly line uh, when the men are off to war in the 1940s, and uh, of course that's where she met Kurt Russell. And uh, I got into a, a bit of a conversation about this film with a fellow uh, film lover and Goldie Hawn fan, um, where I kind of said, oh, I, you know. Famously, Goldie Hawn and Jonathan Demi did not get along on the set, apparently, or at least, you know, towards the end of production. And uh, Demi didn't have final cut on the movie, and Hawn was producing it, so she kind of took over. And, of course, there was a lot of hand-wringing about, oh, if only we could see Jonathan Demi's final cut of this film. And and uh, my friend cogently put it out. I was like, well, look, Goldie Hawn produced this. The film that exists is pretty good. Um, you know, and you know, she wasn't a, a novice by the time this film came out. The, the film, she was the producer. The film is her vision of the film. Uh, and it should just, you know, who cares what Demi's final yeah. cut was? It's, yeah, seriously. And, you know, and he wasn't the filmmaker he'd become later on at that point anyway. So, you know, why worry about it? Yeah. You know, enjoy the film that, that we have. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and that shows that what a force Goldie was as a producer as well behind the scenes, which maybe she doesn't get enough credit for. Because um, yeah. so, some of those films, I haven't seen Wildcats. Uh, I remember Protocol was kind of interesting. Goldie goes to yeah. Washington kind of thing. Um, uh, and uh, of course, there's always Overboard, which right, I with, guess is, with again with Kurt Russell. Yeah, where she plays the heiress who gets a bump on the. What's with the bumps on the head? Yeah, I don't know. I don't. Know. I don't know. <laughs> she she oh, interestingly, Overboard is being remade with Anna Faris. I've that's heard coming that. out this year. Anna Faris for a while there was being in talks to remake um, uh, Private Benjamin as well, but I understand Rebel Wilson might be doing that. Oh, that'd be um, great. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and interestingly, uh, Goldie Hawn and Amy Schumer, who we started this episode talking about, have been in a film together called Snatched. came out last year. I haven't seen it. The reviews were terrible. So I didn't <laughs> make it a priority when I was doing research for this conversation. But uh, but yeah, what one film I did see from back in the day with 9 to 5, also from 1980, and starring Lily Tomlin, Joan Fonda, and Dolly Parton as three New York office workers suffering under the boss man, Dabney Coleman, who is uh, in a lot of movies from the 80s. He was actually a huge star in a way for someone who, you know, uh, basically playing the same kind of role, an obnoxious dude. Uh, and uh, here here it's... This <laughs> the master is, of being obnoxious. Yes, uh, but he's still working. Like, he was in a movie a couple of years ago. Uh, he was in... Uh, Warren Beatty's rules don't apply. So he's still been able to, you know, carve out a career just past all of this. But he was quite a presence in this film. And, of course, the women are amazing. Um, it is uh, kind of an awesome movie to watch uh, now, even. It does have a lot of interesting things to say about the politics of the workplace. And these three women are, are completely dealing with this complete chauvinist, sexist, bigoted pig and uh, take control of the situation, uh, abducting him and changing the office politics in a way that is 
really progressive and even now speaks to, you know, they, they institute uh, job sharing, flexible hours, daycare center, and equal pay. Uh, you know, it's, 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 we're still talking about this stuff. So it's a really funny and remarkable, if almost depressing look. <laughs> kind uh, of. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really worth seeing again. I mean, the fa- you know, the fact that we have, you know, I mean, corporate culture still has a long way to go to change, but it has changed to some degree since nine to five came out. But as we as we've seen in with recent events that uh, a remake of nine to five today uh, would not be entirely out of place. And in fact, probably welcome. And I, speaking of Lily Tomlin, um, you know, she didn't have a, a, a huge career as a, a leading star in films, nine to five is obviously a highlight. All of me with Steve Martin sure. is is very much uh, a, a terrific performance and a, and a great chemistry there. Um, you know, especially when you know she as she takes over his body kind of thing. Um, uh, I, I do want to mention quickly a, a film that came out in the late seventies with Lily Tomlin that was basically her project, uh, uh, working with her creative and life partner, Jane Wagner, who wrote a script uh, of this film that was, uh, I think, the first directorial effort for Joel Schumacher, who, of course, would later be an object of much derision. But here, uh, does an interesting job, because he came out of a sort of costume and set design background. Uh, The Incredible Shrinking Woman, based on the universal uh, horror class, sci-fi horror classic, The Incredible Shrinking Man. Here's The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Uh, Universal still owned the property uh, into the late 70s. And uh, so Jane Wagner took it and make it made it a criticism of corporate culture and consumerism and uh, the environment and all the chemicals we're using and pumping into our bodies through cleaners and food and bad food and, and so on and smog and everything. And then Lily Tomlin basically becomes a celebrity because she's shrinking, but then becomes the center of this evil conspiracy by a corporation to shrink the world and uh, take over other countries by shrinking the population and seizing their natural resources. So it's... It wasn't well-loved at the time. I remember it came out and it was kind of a bomb. Uh, but I'm watching it now and I'm thinking, this was kind of ahead of its time by, by being so damning of corporate culture and, and corporations and, and the way that things were going. Uh, this film is, was really very prescient in the way that, uh, you know, the, the, the shopping malls and so on in suburbia would kind of take over our lives. And, uh, and Tomlin is great. She, also, she plays this housewife who has to basically come up and lead a revolution in a way. And also uh, she plays a, a neighbor who's a very kind of prim and proper woman, uh, as you can imagine Tomlin playing, and also has a cameo as one of her well-known characters that I won't spoil. But um, it's it's worth taking a look at. It, it's very much a 70s film. The, the color scheme in this movie is just nuts. But um, like I say, uh, you know, Lily Tomlin kind of holds your attention throughout the film, and it, it's, it's message of, of, you know, not falling for every uh, advertisement and new product and everything that you come across uh, is is still one that we can learn from. And again, there's a lot of slapstick humor that seems a bit uh, cluttered and clumsy. But uh, but Tomlin's very likable, and it's it's interesting to see something so forward thinking in 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 the 1970s comedy. <laughs> wraps up our look at women in comedy and uh, I know having a couple of straight white guys discuss women in comedy might be a bit of a bit of a stretch but you know I 
at least we're trying. Yeah, this <laughs> is what we're trying to say. <laughs> we could go further. We could. There's a lot more we could talk about, but I think we're. Yeah, I, and I enjoyed this this dip in myself. Uh, you know, I, I, if we just talked about straight white guy movies, this would be. We would have been finished a long time ago, as far as this podcast goes. And and uh, you know, we're. we're we're trying to uh, learn ourselves along the way. We hope you like this look at these films, and there's certainly a lot more that we could have talked about. And of course, you can go out and find your own uh, films that that fit this bill. And uh, and I hope you do. And I hope uh, maybe you can send us some feedback through our Facebook page, for example, or uh, we're on Twitter at, at Lens Me Your Ears, and uh, or even personally. My name is Stephen Cook, by the way. I'm an archer writer here in Halifax at the Chronicle Herald, and you can find me on Twitter at ns underscore s c o o k e. And I'm Karsten Knox, and I have a Twitter account as well. It's named after my blog, Flaw in the Iris. Thanks for listening, and of course, we'd like to thank uh, the folks here at CKDU 88.1 FM for the use of their fabulous facilities, and the folks at the Village Soundcast Network who put it all together and put it on for you. Lens Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox, and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to lensmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. <laughs>